Hi, this is Steve Hers, author of Don't Take Yes for an Answer, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Steve Herz. He's the founder and president of the talent management company, If Management, and is now an officer of the Montag Group. His agency represents over 250 of today's top journalists, broadcast executives, and media personalities at networks like CBS, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, ESPN, and elsewhere, and provides guidance and coaching to athletes, CEOs, and entrepreneurs. Steve likes to guess the lines to well-written TV dialogue before they're spoken. He lives in New York City with his wife and two children, and is here to talk about his book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer, Using Authority, Warmth, and Energy to Get Exceptional Results. Welcome, Steve. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me on today. Very excited to be here. Hey, it's great. You know, I always ask guests to take a look back to start off with. And when you think about yourself and your life growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? You know, I'd say it has to be my dad, my mom. I had some uncles that had a big impact on me just in terms of I come from a very entrepreneurial family with a very entrepreneurial spirit. And so I think I saw that was really modeled for me as a child. And you know, just that kind of work ethic and that individual pursuit was something that really made an impact on me. If you think about what it was like growing up and you were asked, who's uh, an entrepreneur in your family who you follow? Who's the first name of a person who comes to mind and what was their business? You know, it's interesting. I would say my dad, again, he had his own law firm when we were kids and, you know, he's retired now. But, you know, I didn't really know too many people that started companies. I knew people that were professionals where I was growing up. And so he was one of the only people that had gone out and started his own law firm. So I think that really made a a big impact on me and really has um, probably more so than I even can think about. You know what I mean? Sure. When you think about him starting a firm, what type of qualities did you realize that it took to be successful starting your own firm? I think it's just about having a lot of self-motivation about, you know, frankly, just getting up early in the morning and having a routine and being religiously rigorous about that routine, sticking with it, being diligent and being responsible to yourself and to other people. And, you know, just that kind of good habits, habit forming and really getting things done is something that I think a lot of people take for granted as the basis of success. And like I said, that was really modeled for me. And so, you know, I also have two older brothers who also coincidentally started their own law firms and still have them. So, you know, you see that kind of entrepreneurial, self-motivated drive that modeled for you. It's almost like I have no excuses. I I just had to do what others were doing right in front of me, almost in a race. Sure. There was a lot of social pressure, even in your family. Do you remember a time growing up, either in high school or college or even early in your career, where you drew on that kind of inspiration and model from your dad and the lessons you learned from him? Oh, absolutely. I think that when you see other people in your life who are successful and you have these working models, it seems very possible. You know, whatever doubt we have, and we all have doubt, it, if you kind of can see the finish line in whatever race you're in, so to speak, I think that visualization makes it 
seem very doable and not that not that difficult, frankly. Not that it isn't difficult, but less difficult. And I've always been a big fan of visualization. But when the, the visualization is right there in front of you and, and you see it, it, you don't even have to close your eyes. It's right there for you. It does serve as, a, I think, a very effective model. So, you know, people use, you know, other people as role models, whether it's famous people or podcast hosts like yourself to find inspiration. If you have it right there sitting in front of you in your home, then it makes it very easy. What you're describing is so like what happened when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. And before that, it was like, oh, my gosh, will a human being ever be able to break the four minute mile? And then within a couple of years after him breaking it, not only did other people break the four minute mile, but they bested his best time. And when you're looking at success and you're imagining, gosh, could I ever start on my own business? Oh my gosh, my dad did and he grew it. You know that it's possible that you have that example and model to follow. And that kind of makes it much easier and it gives you that, allows you to tap into that inner drive, doesn't it? It does. I agree. And it, and it, and it also, you know, the, the great people in this world are the ones who, you know, Roger Bannister is the great person because he conceived of something in his mind that wasn't really there. You know, I'm not conceiving of anything that isn't already there. When it's already there, it makes it a lot easier for you. So I, I agree with you. So one of the things I love about your book, it got me right from the title. Don't take yes for an answer. It's a great pattern disrupt because it gets our attention right and makes us pay attention, closer attention to what you have to say. When you were designing the title for your book, what did you hope it would convey? Well, I hope that it would convey exactly that, that there are so many things in life that we take for granted as the gospel that really aren't. And, you know, look, this is not a one-size-fits-all approach. There are times in your life you should take yes for an answer. As I said in the dedication page, my wife luckily took yes for an answer on our wedding day. <laughs> but I'm saying as a general rule, there are quite a few situations that you shouldn't take yes for an answer. And so I think it's just about questioning the underlying assumptions that many of us kind of go through in life on autopilot that can be really very much to our detriment. And also, you know, frankly, in marketing a book, you know, I'm seeing, obviously, it's like anything else in this world is competitive. I wanted people, if they're in a bookstore, and they're looking at a variety of different books, I wanted them to look at this one and stop and maybe think for a second, hey, wait a minute, what does that mean? That's confusing, or that's insightful, or whatever it is, just that they would stop and spend an extra second or two in terms of where their eye goes. And then maybe, just maybe, I'll pick it up off the shelf and maybe look at it and then maybe be kind of attracted or taken in by it. That was really the, the, the hope by it. Well, the reputation you have among your clients and your colleagues is that you elicit awe from people who hire you and people who learn from you. And it's not because you're trying to flatter them, but it's because you're helping them use three words, which their acronym spells awe, use their authority, warmth, and energy. When did you notice that these were the three elements that helped people stand apart and really develop their voice and their perspective so that they could be even more successful in their careers and their businesses? Well, it's not something that I really even had any awareness to in my career up until, as I mentioned this in the book, when I started working for a guy named Alfred Geller or working with a guy named Alfred Geller in late 1995. And he was a real student of communication. And he was the guy that I would say lit the match in my life for really trying to understand 
the science behind communication and what made someone an effective communicator and why. And he had a lot of theories and a lot of what I write about in this book is derivative of things I learned from him. But what I found, he talked a lot about strength, you know, which is another term that could be synonymous with authority and warmth. But there were two things I felt that he missed. One was the energy piece because he himself, while he was a very you know, good student of this, I didn't feel that he himself communicated with a lot of energy. He did communicate with a lot of authority. And also I felt like he missed the piece of kind of the off-air piece. So he was a very respected talent agent for newscasters, but his advice was really largely confined to how you perform on air. And I thought there were a lot of clients that weren't necessarily doing as well as they could, even though they were performing well on air, they weren't really connecting with people, their bosses, their colleagues, what have you, off air. And so that was kind of where I found really started to develop these ideas and started really writing down things about them and studying them and took a lot of classes. This all started, I would say, you know, right around that time in the mid nineties and through today, you know, still trying to study it. Still don't think I, I know nearly enough to know about it. Well, it's part of that perspective that keeps all of us who are high performers hungry for more. And we never think that we've gotten to the best and can't learn more from anyone or from any topic. So I recognize and acknowledge that. I think that we live in a culture that has a lot of danger set up in there, danger of, of yeses. And when you say don't take yes for an answer, I think you're calling attention to something that's really needed. There are three aspects to it that you talk about in the book. The trophy culture, where everybody gets a participation trophy and it really diminishes excellence and accomplishment and making you know, participation equal to accomplishment, which is kind of distortion. There's great inflation, which everyone has seen, and we never think that it's true when we're going through it, but you can kind of get a better perspective once you're out of the educational system. And then the dangerous, litigious work environment where people think that any grievance can be solved by hiring lawyers. And people just think that these three factors combine to create a certain blend of toxicity. Can you say more about what you've observed and how these three factors come together? Sure. Well, I think you did a great job summarizing what I said in the book. I would add to that that I'm really trying very hard in this book, and I, it's really my intention, or not my intention, is to make a political statement on where are, where are we as a society, why we're too litigious, why the participation trophy culture is bad, et cetera, et cetera. That's not my goal here. My goal is just to really point out where we are in terms of reality and what has happened in society over the last 30 years, some years. And I really be careful about one thing is that I wrote the book and called it Don't Take Yes for an Answer for a reason. I didn't call it Don't Give Yes for an Answer. So I'm trying to say to the reader and to the individual that you are being misled. You are the one who is losing out of this. Just because HR doesn't want to give you constructive feedback in many situations because society has gotten litigious. Just because you got an A, even though maybe you deserve to be, the only person that's losing out on that is you because you're not going to reach your full potential. So the, the idea behind don't take yes for an answer is, come on, wise up here. Don't get caught up in this vortex of mediocrity. Just demand more from yourself and you know, kind of don't pretend that you're doing better than you are. And, th and this goes for everybody, myself included. And, and really, mostly for people 
who want to do better in life and feel this nagging sense that, wait a minute, I'm getting all this good feedback or, you know, not negative feedback that I'm maybe mistaking for positive feedback. And I don't know how to do better. And I've kind of woken up one day at 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, and I know I can do better. And now's the time to have that shift in my mindset. And don't take yes for an answer can be that shift. You met Joe Torre, the Yankees manager, before he became a manager there. And he experienced some insights that really led to him demanding more from himself and really going through kind of a change. Can you share with me that story? Sure. Well, I was working for an agency in 1995 before I went out and started my own business. And in July of that year, Joe Torre was fired, or June of that year, he was fired as the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. And it was the third time in his career he'd been fired. He had an overall losing record. And my boss had signed him as a broadcasting client and asked me to help with representation. And it wasn't exactly uh, the guy you were looking forward to representing at the time. He, he didn't have a huge future in broadcasting. And he was kind of on the older side, like I said. And really what you would think of as the downside of his career. I don't think most people could have even expected, or, or Joe Torre might have even expected, that he would have gotten another managerial job after three times of failing. And he went back home, or, or what was his wife's home, of Cincinnati, and she, she was pregnant with their first child, it was second marriage, and she asked him to go to a self-help seminar, a four-day seminar, and it was called Life Success. And he went he told me as you know just as a favor to his wife he didn't want to say no to her and he didn't really have that much of an interest in going or participating and it was the second day of the seminar and and he he told me like he knew if he was going to manage again he had to change he knew what he was doing wasn't working but i don't think he fully knew what it was that he needed to change and at the seminar he decided to speak up something kind of uh got him. Somebody said something that made him want to react. And he got up to speak. And to his own surprise, he, very reserved man, he cried in front of this audience of several hundred people. And he broke down and he told them a story of his own abuse that he had suffered at the hands of his father and the abuse that he saw in his home. And he said that in that moment, everything changed for him. He had been carrying around a lot of low self-esteem because of the way he felt about himself because he could never prove himself to his father. And in that moment, everything changed and everything changed about his communication. Most importantly, he went from being this very closed kind of reserved, almost gruff man to being this open, loving, expressive, warm, kind person. And a few months later, he was lucky enough to get the Yankees job where he had gotten it around that same time. And he went to spring training and he was a new man. And he started relating to his bosses and to his players in a very different way. He was much more accessible and much more open and um, really a kinder guy. And not only did his warmth improve, but his authority improved because people, these things can go very much hand in hand. People think that you can be either warm or authoritative, but that's not true. You can be both. And really great communicators know how to kind of work both sides of that line. And because he was so accessible and so honest and decent, and he was able to really communicate that, his players really responded to him. They always did respond to him as an authoritative figure when he was a manager, but 
never as a guy who could really connect with you on a deep level. And, you know, the rest is history. The Yankees went on to win the World Series that year. Not only did Torrey master a relationship for 12 years with George Steinbrenner, who was notoriously difficult and never had a manager work for him for more than just a few years. He won, you know, in, in those 12 years, he took the team to the playoffs every single year, which is incredible. He went to six World Series, won four of them, ended up in the Hall of Fame, took the the life story that he had and started a, a foundation called Safe at Home, which is one of the most respected and just really tremendous amount of millions of dollars they've raised over the years for people who have been abused. He's a, a really well-respected speaker on, on the circuit. He's an executive at Major League Baseball. So his life has just completely, completely blossomed and, and changed. And he was 55 when this happened for him. So the point being, it can happen for anybody. It can happen for anybody. And it also reinforces the point that I've made many times before, which is we change when some new information comes into our life, or it might be a new relationship, or somebody brings something out of us. And here's an example where both things happen. Through new information, this new experience he put himself into because his wife asked him to go. This story and this healing was brought out of him and allowed him to make a much bigger impact with the great knowledge that he had and he was able to reach more people and connect with them in a stronger way. And a lot of times people overlook the importance of that connection. They think that just having the technical knowledge or the experience is sufficient, but it isn't. I mean, you point out in the book that it's 85% of our personality and soft skills that make a difference in advancing, not just based upon your own observation, but distilling and summarizing from very credible studies. And it's only due to 15% of technical skills. What do people have to realize in order to elevate the importance of warmth in our careers? Well, when you say what do they have to realize, I think they either have to buy into this idea or not. That's a choice that they make. And I think that, you know, look, I wrote the book in part because I think there's a major misalignment of resources that we individuals and our academic society is is dedicating to this 85% of soft skills. I don't want to diminish or uh, make light of how important the hard skills are. You know, if you want to be an engineer or a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer or whatever, you have to learn the technical part of the job. That's very important. But I think that once you learn those technical skills and you get a job in that field of your choice, you're going to be working alongside with pretty much everybody else who is on the bell curve of good enough in those technical skills. And the issue is, is that if you don't have proficiency in these soft skills that, you know, we, we call in the book, the 85%, the AWE authority warmth energy, then you're not going to reach the highest levels of what you could be possible, what could be possible for you. And because you didn't get any metrics around this or put any time into it, literally since first grade or even before first grade, then how do you know if you're good at it? How do you even know what you could be improving upon? And so you have these giant blind spots in your life. I mean, are people in your office going to tell you, you know what, Joe, I think your voice stinks. I think you have a really high pitch and I don't even like the sound of it. I don't want to be around you. It makes me recoil from you. Or you know what? 
I think that you use the word like too much and it makes you seem less intelligent. And I don't want to be in a meeting with you. I don't want to follow you. Or you don't make eye contact with me when you talk to me or when you listen to me. I feel like I can't trust you. Nobody tells us these things, but yet these are the things that sabotage careers. And that's why I hope people buy into it. I know that I've, I've read many examples in your book about people who were offered coaching and they just didn't realize. I'm thinking of one woman you work with who didn't realize that she was six months away from being let go and was only thinking this is something remedial and she kind of went along with it because HR suggested it instead of realizing that this was the fine edge that she needed to make a turn and, and become someone who could convey information in a way that people wanted to hear and bring out points that weren't just lackluster recommendations, but saying this is something critical that needs to be paid attention to. The analysis falls short if it doesn't come with strong, clear recommendations, right? Exactly. And yet there's a problem because the recommendation rarely comes with clarity and the recommendation rarely comes, period. I mean, how many people are working? This person I, I talk about in the book, her name is Ina. She at least got HR to hire a coach for her, which she you know, largely ignored and then ended up getting not even fired because nobody gets fired anymore. At least for the most part, she was, you know, kind of made redundant, so to speak. But, you know, really, in essence, fired. But most people don't even have coaching made available to them. Most people never even get HR to tell them what they should do. That's why, again, it's don't take yes for an answer. Demand answers from yourself. Demand answers from people you trust, colleagues. How do I come across? What can I be better at? You know, I mean, even in my doing these, you know, I've done some podcasts now. I, I mentioned this in the book is that, you know, I would do a podcast and, you know, I would say a hundred times out of a hundred, the host and the producer would say, oh, you were great. You were great. Thank you so much. You were great. Great. Thanks for having us, you know, for being here. But if I really push back and I would follow up with the host or the producer or somebody else, and say, well, thank you for telling me how great I was, but what are one or two things you think I could do better? Invariably, there are always two or three things, sometimes 10 that they would point out you could do better. So you weren't that great. Otherwise, there wouldn't be two or three things that they could tell you you could do better. So Steve, tell me, what do people have to do in order to ask for that feedback? Not necessarily what's wrong, but it's the critical feedback that helps you become better, the constructive feedback that isn't necessarily trying to build you up and give you a participation trophy or just some boosting your ego, but they're looking to help you improve. And that requires a different skill set, doesn't it? Skill set in terms of the individual or the, the coach? I'm, I'm not sure what you mean exactly. No, the person asking for feedback, you know, say that I was someone giving presentations and you'd set in on some of my presentations. I couldn't just say to you, did you like them? I would have to ask something more open-ended and then ask you in particular, now, what's some way that I could use to improve on the presentations I was making? Right. How do you help people with that who are looking to improve, but don't quite have the skill sets as to how to ask and be ready for feedback that just isn't all positive? Well, there's a couple of things here. First of all, you know, I, I think if you read the book, it does give you a really easy platform by which you can improve. You know, if you use the awe platform, if you can ask somebody, you heard me give this presentation, what'd you think of my authority? 
What did you think of my voice? What did you think of my posture, my body language? How did you like the way that I use my hands? How did you like my presence? How was my physicality? How was my inflection in my voice? Did I seem like I believe what I was saying in terms of my own authority? And so there's a lot of very easy criteria you can use within the book. And then on the warmth, you can say to people, how did you like me in terms of connecting to the audience? Did I make eye contact with people? Did you feel like I was really present in the room, even though I was a speaker, did I feel present to you? Did I feel like I was listening to you with my body, with my eyes? How did I respond to your questions? Did you feel like I really was listening to what you were asking? Did I really respond to the questions at hand that were really being brought forth before the presentation happened, what have you? So, you know, there's a lot of ways that one can measure warmth. Did I smile enough? Did I feel like I was somebody that you would feel comfortable talking to? Could I ask you a question if we weren't in this kind of a setting, if I was sitting next to you in a bar? You know what I mean? There's many different ways that you can have your warmth assessed. And a lot of it is discussed in granularity in the book. And in terms of my energy, did I keep you energized? Did I make you feel like you wanted to learn more? Did you fall asleep? Were you dozing? Were you you attuned to me? There's a a lot of different ways that you could get that feedback. And so this is just one platform. I mean, there are others, but I think what I offer in this book is a very simple, easy to use guide in terms of A-W-E that anyone can remember and apply. That's right. And a lot of times what people have lacked before hasn't necessarily been the willingness to learn, but perhaps the language to learn, which is something they can get directly from the book as well as from listening to you present these ideas. Absolutely. And, and I just want to also go back and really respond further on your previous question, because it was something I didn't answer, which is you're asking about somebody, can they take that kind of feedback? I forgot exactly what you asked, but it's really a question of where are you today and where do you expect and want to be tomorrow? And I use tomorrow metaphorically, of course, but if you don't improve something today, you're going to be in the exact same place you are tomorrow. So anyone who tells you you're great, you're perfect, there's nothing else you could do, is kind of dooming you, so to speak, to a life of, I wouldn't necessarily say mediocrity, but a life of stagnation. And if you don't want to get better, the surest way to not get better is to not recognize there are things you could improve upon. So if you just have a little bit of a shift in your mindset and understand that if somebody you trust and somebody you respect give you some feedback that is constructive. They're giving you a gift. They're giving you the opportunity to get better at something. I mean, the people pay, you know, thousands of dollars to get, you know, SAT tutors. They pay thousands of dollars to have quarterback coaches. You go to, um, when you take a, an instrument, you'll pay lots of money to have a great piano teacher teach you. You know, you, you can let the world be your teacher in terms of how do you improve your communication. And it's free. Steve, that's a great point. And another example from the book that you brought out that I'd love to have you explain more now is about uh, Coach Tom Coughlin with the Giants and what he went through that helped him transform his understanding and ability to relate and connect with people to get even better results because he took his coaching up to a new notch. What was that like for him? Well, I think it was a very painful experience for him based on what I've read about it and in my conversation with him for the book is that Coach Coughlin is a extremely, extremely committed guy. And he loves the game of football. And I think he really loves the players that he coaches. And I think he really cares about them. 
And he also has a very old school mentality that part of caring about someone is creating a sense of order and discipline in your life. And it's about sitting up straight in your chair, not having a hat on, having your hair cut properly, having your shoelaces tied, et cetera, you know, all these kinds of things that we would call old school. And also he's notoriously famous for Tom Coughlin time, where if you are supposed to be somewhere on the hour, being there five minutes beforehand is being on time for him. So punctuality, also a very important trait of his. But what happened was, is that after coaching the Giants for three years, he really wasn't getting the results that I think he wanted, certainly not what ownership wanted. And the players felt worn out. They just weren't having fun. It was too much regimentation, too many rules, too much authority, if you will. And there wasn't a lot of lightheartedness or fun or really a sense of, hey, this guy cares about us. It was, you know, in terms of tough love, it was all tough and no visible love. And so the owners went to him and they said, look, coach, we, we can't have you as our coach anymore. We went eight and eight this last year and we expect more. And their best player, Tiki Barber, decided to retire at really the apex of his career. And so what happened is, is that his family decided to have an intervention with him. And they sat him down and they said, you know, Dad, you don't realize, like, everybody hates you. And he was really stung by that. And he decided to make a change. And one of his key kind of people on his staff was a guy named Charles Way, who had played for the team and then was the director of community affairs. He just said to him one day, coach, I see the way you are with your grandkids. I see the way you are with your family. Just show that side of yourself to the players. And the next day he came into practice and he brought his grandchildren with him. And after practice was over, he was rolling around in the grass, hugging and playing joyfully with his grandkids. And the players were stunned by this. And they saw a whole other side of Coach Coughlin. At, at that point, he decided he was going to show that side of his personality. And he went to the media who hated him and he asked them, why don't you like me? And they said, because all you ever do is think about yourself. You never care about us, which is a real big element of warmth that I talk about in the book, acknowledging other people, making people feel like they're important because they are and not being self-centered in your behavior or your communication. And the other thing he did is that he took the team bowling. And then most importantly, it was his language. He connected with these guys in a way by being vulnerable and open and telling them he was tough on them because he loved them. He wanted them to win. He wanted them to get the most out of their lives and really be proud of themselves. But when he didn't use just the language of toughness and he combined it with a language of love, this 8-8 eight eight team with the same players except for losing their best player went out and won the Super Bowl. And it really was a demonstration of how much people will respond to you if they feel a sense of kinship with you and a sense of camaraderie and a sense of purpose that emanates from that warmth. It's, it's a truly remarkable story. It's a great turnaround story. It really is. That was the 2007 winter season? Yes, I believe so. That was the team that ended up winning the Super Bowl in that January in Arizona. And it really was using the same resources. And so many times... Business leaders think, oh, gosh, if I could just get a new group of managers in or if I could just replace that troublesome department. But you can make a difference by changing your language, by changing your approach, by willing to hear feedback that you may have been blocking or denying that was there in front of you all the time. And you can get that same performance out of the teams that you have now as evidenced by 
what the story that we just heard from Tom Coughlin and, and the results that were public, you know, very widely available. It really does foment a change. Absolutely. It does. I mean, listen, one of the points of the book, it's an individual book. You read it, you improve yourself, and you don't take yes for an answer. You get better. You become more of an authority in terms of the way you communicate, warmer and more energetic around other people. People like you more. Your your skill set is there, but now you've put together the whole soft skill piece as well. That's great. That's one part of the book. But on a much larger level, what it can operate at for organizations is creating a very different and better culture in a team, a team of five, a team of 50, or a team of a million, is if you have a culture where people feel safe, being able to A, ask people about their own weaknesses without feeling too vulnerable to feel weak. So, and they're not gonna be kind of treated weakly for asking for help or asking for feedback on what they could do better. So you have, that sense of safety is there in their communication. There's a sense of improvement in the culture. There's a sense of curiosity. And there's a real free space. If I'm constantly asking you for feedback about what I could be doing better, and you're asking me, and then it just takes root in an organization, that people will be free to compliment each other and criticize each other in a way that's going to be very constructive as to people walking home from or leaving work very deflated. And then once that takes root in an organization, everybody feels cared for, and there's just a whole culture that becomes a real virtuous cycle. What's the lesson of deep listening that comes from being able to watch a really well-written TV dialogue, such as Billions or The Americans, and be able to understand the characters so much so that you can speak the dialogue almost a line at a time ahead of the characters themselves saying the words? Well, the lesson is, is that if you're really paying attention to somebody, just talking about a TV show, and you're able to anticipate what the next line might be, the only way to do that is to be so focused and present on what they're saying and understanding what their motivation is and understanding what preceded the line before that and the line before that to understand how it all builds up. And I think it's that was a practice that I learned from taking improv classes and it's a practice that I kind of just try to maintain with you know this little game I play with the television. And you can apply it in your daily life. If you're having a conversation with someone and you can, in your mind, know what they're going to say. And it's it just the only way you can do that is to be incredibly present with them in that moment. And I, it's something I need to work on. It's, I do it sometimes really well and other times horribly. But at least it can give me a little bit of a mental game to get myself back in the moment. What I love so much about that is that it takes people from being really passive with watching a TV show into engaging more of your mental facility and thinking along with how the scriptwriters must have imagined, you know, wanted to have the characters speak. So I love that game. Steve, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Absolutely. I'm ready. Bring it on. All right. So earlier I asked you about a person who was meaningful to you growing up. As you think back to what it was like maybe in high school or college, What's a song that was meaningful to you during that time? Uh, Ramblin' Man by um, the Allman Brothers. Always loved that song. Just kind of always put me in a good mood and made me kind of, I think I always had a lot of wanderlust in my life for travel and, you know, to living elsewhere. So that was always a song that meant a lot to me. If you could put a slogan about your work on a billboard that key decision makers would need to drive past every morning, 
for a month, what would you put up there that they would read and would be reinforced day after day after day? I mean, this is an easy one. Don't take yes for an answer. Every day of your life, look in the mirror and don't take yes. What's the best $100 purchase you've made in the last six months? $100 purchase. Or less. It's not exact. <laughs> wow. I would say it's the, um, it's the, new, the new shoes I bought to work out in. They're a pair of New Balance that I really like for my flat feet, unfortunately. A little bit of extra art support makes a difference, huh? Exactly. And if you think back, what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Well, it's, a good, it's interesting. I, I stopped running about a year ago because I had a bad hip that I ended up having operated on. So without running, I, no more pain. So that was actually a very smart thing. That's great. And when people are thinking about all the benefits that come from applying the awe principle, what's a mistake that they might make or a misunderstanding that they might take away from this that you can correct now that'll help them out and give them a better chance of succeeding with the awe principle? I think I said this earlier, but the book is called Don't Take Yes for an Answer, not Don't Give Yes for an Answer. Don't worry about the kind of feedback you're giving other people. That'll come in time. Worry about yourself. Worry about how you're going to be able to improve your own life by asking for help from others and asking for that constructive feedback. I think that's something that really is an important takeaway. Well, Steve Herz, author of don't take yes for an answer using authority, warmth, and energy to get exceptional results. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. You have a strong message that people can adopt, embrace, and really take personal responsibility for improving the way that they connect and deliver results. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And Steve, before we say goodbye for now, where can we find out more about you and your work online? Just find me at www.stevenherz, S-T-E-V-E-N. H-E-R-Z for all things related to the book. Fabulous. And in our show notes, Steve, we're going to link to your websites, the ability to link and buy the book, as well as all your social media connections. So thanks once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.